0: You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina.
1: We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change.
0: I want to start by asking you this question, how do you identify? and What determines that? We live in a time of some people call it, gender dysphoria. We live in a time of identity politics. We live in a time where your race and where you're from, your ethnicity, becomes essential to that. How do you, just, how do you identify? And just thinking about gender. I, there was one article I read this week that said there are now 72 genders. Hmm. I'll read you some examples of a few of them that I read. Uh, one of them is astral gender. That's having a gender that identifies and feels like it's related to space. There's color gender, not related to the color of your skin in any way, just whatever color you kind of feel like. So there's pink gender and green gender and blue gender, and I don't know how there's only 72 because there's more than 72 colors. Cinnamon gender, apple spice, fall people, gender. Cisgender is an option. It's closely associated with your birth gender. So there's an acknowledgement at least. It's convenient to have science. Sometimes, sometimes it's not. Hmm. Ego gender, it's a personal type of gender. Identified by the individual alone. It's based on the person's experience within the self. The self. The Ohio State, the, the self. All right. Espy gender. Um, the individual relates with gender identified with spirits. Yeah, I think so. It's dangerous. Mirror gender for all the people pleasers. Changing one's gender based on the people that you're around. <laughs> God says there's two. But is that your identity or is it your age or is it your race or is it your success level or your education or something somebody else said about you or something you're trying to prove that's not true? Is it the worst thing you've ever done, the best thing you've ever done? How do you identify? We talked about worldview last week. One of the first questions that everybody asks, and that's why we all have a worldview because how we answer it shapes how we view the world is, who am I? Where did I come from? What's right from wrong? Where am I going? What matters while I'm here? But today, who are you? How do you identify? Who decides? Do you get to decide? Does somebody else and what they think about you say about you? Do, they, do your parents decide? Does your DNA, is the science, the science Does the DNA decides? How do you identify? One uh, contributor to psychology today, not a Christian, but from a humanistic worldview, talks about identity, and he says this, I can't pronounce his name, so I'll just put it on the screen. He's a professor at the University of Illinois. He says, psychologists assume that identity formation is a matter of finding oneself, so you decide. By matching one's talents, oh, there's a lot of people that are wrong about their talents. Have you ever watched all the shows? Anyway... You match your talents that you've identified and potential with an available role in society. Thus, defining oneself within a social world is among one of the most difficult choices a person ever makes. And so he would say, you decide your identity. In the face of identity struggle, many end up adopting a darker identity, such as drug abuse, compulsive shopping or gambling as a compensatory method, that's a way to make up for what's lacking, of experiencing aliveness, I like that he's making up words, I think, and, or, or, or staving off depression and meaninglessness, it's just a way to cope. But you decide. Some people, their worldview would dictate that that's true. If you're the center of your worldview, remember there's two, you decide. And we know that getting your identity wrong is dangerous. We're all familiar with identity theft, costs billions of dollars a year. I don't know if you know what the stats are on how likely it is that you're to get struck by lightning. Ridiculously unlikely to win the lottery. Unlikely. Fall out of your bed. Unlikely. Isn't it weird? How do we not fall out of our bed more? One in six Americans experience identity theft. 90% of Americans in 2020 had some scam fraud attempted on them and so some of you have experienced identity theft. Have you ever experienced a mistaken identity? You thought somebody was somebody else or somebody else thought you were someone. I was, I was shopping for shoes the other day at this store. When I came into the store, I was returning something. and I had this big bag. I'm returning something. And do you ever feel somebody looking at you? The manager was like staring at me from across the store. And I remember it because he looked like Darius Rucker, who I really enjoy his singing. Uh, so I, looked, I felt him. I saw him looking at me. And I thought, maybe he's mad at me because I'm returning something. But he just keeps staring at me and I can feel it. Then I saw him go over by the door where all the employees go in and out and this guy came out in this big uniform, looked like he had a bulletproof vest on He looked like he was on a SWAT team and he starts showing the manager something on his phone and then they both start staring at me. No, I'm a, I feel like I'm gonna, get, I felt like I did something wrong even though I hadn't done anything wrong. So I'm like, they think I'm a shoplifter or something. All right, I'll just be friendly to them. The SWAT guy walks by me and said, hey, how you doing? He didn't acknowledge my existence. Uh-oh. The manager comes walking by. Hey, hey. Everything okay? Yep, we're good. I was thinking, nope, we're not good. (laughs) So I start to explain, I haven't done anything wrong, but I have a guilty conscience. I'm like, hey, I'm not shoplifting. I saw you over there with that guy. And he's looking at me like, what are you talking about? And I said, you got the SWAT guy. He's like, oh, that is a pretty intense uniform. That's a contractor. We hired him to put new doors. (laughs) And so we were looking at the door, which is behind you. And I was like, oh, I thought I was on like a wanted list and you guys were gonna arrest me as they were about to swoop in here. So I'm not a shoplifter, I'm a pastor. And then this woman I'd never seen before pulls her mask down and goes, He is! I go to this church. <laughs> Good thing I wasn't shoplifting, but rate. Anyway, <laughs> you ever experienced mistaken identity? Stolen identity? You have a thief, an enemy, who wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. He wants to erase your worldview if it's God-centered. It doesn't matter what label you put on it. Remember, I told you there are really primarily two: there's a God-centered worldview, and there's everything else where man ends up being at the center. Even some people who name their false God Jesus, God of the Bible, but they're the center. There's other. There's two worldviews. The enemy wants to erase one, and it's more dangerous than just money. And you can read stories about this. Last night I was even just going over the notes. I looked up a story and saw this guy in Texas who was arrested for a murder he did not commit. Two years after the murder had taken place, a convicted felon who was in prison for life in prison for murder called the police and said, I know who killed that girl, accused this guy. He got arrested. There was DNA at the scene. There was a hairnet and a half-smoked cigarette, and she's left on the side of the road dead. He's convicted. Then the guy who accused him said, I was wrong. I was just doing that out of vengeance. He didn't do it. Another guy was accused. His DNA was at the scene. The first guy was let go after 30 years. That's Texas. The state of Texas gave him a million dollars. Woo! I'd like my 30 years back. How about that? I read about one woman. Her family was almost taken from her. She got a call one day out of the blue. Said your baby tested positive for methamphetamine. She panicked. She's a mother of four. Said, we're sending child protective services to your house tomorrow. Police came to her house with child protective services, accused her of being a bad mother, threatened to take away her other four kids. And then it dawned on her, my youngest child's two years old. How do you have a test from that? That's not medical identity fraud. Another woman used her name, gave birth to her, a child. And it was 12 days of her being investigated, employers being asked, and all, and thinking she's going to lose her kids before the grandmother of the biological child said uh, that's that's not that woman's that's our baby your family enemies coming after your family i want you to lose your life waste your life 30 60 years of life another woman stole her daughter's identity her name is wendy brown if you want to look up the details of the story so that she could go back to high school she was 33 years old and be a cheerleader she went to school went to a pool party with the cheerleading squad tried out for the team and and then was found out and arrested. Pled insanity. Some of what's happening in our culture is insanity. But in a culture of compromise, if you are a follower of Christ, your identity will be in crisis. It's being pursued, trying to try and cause you confusion, to be confiscated from your possession, so you can waste your life, lose your life, be destroyed. So, how do you identify? So we're going to talk about Daniel chapter 1 today. If you've got your Bibles, we'll look at it. Daniel chapter 1. Remember what's happening in this book is that there's this nation that's a world power now. Uh, there were the Egyptians, the Assyrians. Some of you emailed me about history. They changed how they define world powers. Babylon could truly rule the whole world. Nebuchadnezzar, to this point, probably, maybe Pharaoh, the most powerful man that's lived. The way they take possession of Israel is in a process, so there are different times where different groups are pulled out, but we know that they're brutal. If you read 2 Kings chapter 25, you'll see there's a story where they're coming after one of the kings from Israel, and they take him captive, but before they punish him, they kill his kids in front of him, two sons. Then they gouge his eyes out. But in Daniel chapter 1, they seem so friendly. They're wooing Daniel and his friends into assimilating into the Babylonian culture, We'll give you food and money and training and education and a position and benefits as long as you don't defy us, as long as you agree with us. You say our talking points, or at the least you'll be irrelevant, if not erased. Sound familiar? We know who they truly are. Read 2 Kings chapter 25. They will kill you and enjoy doing it gouged his eyes out right after the most painful moment in his life so that it's seared in his memory. But here, we see that God's the one who put them there. God put them there? not my God. The God of the Bible did. And there's comfort in this, actually. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim. The Israelite king of Judah... Into the into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king's hand. How's that comforting? Well, I'm not saying they like it, liked it. Read Psalm 37. They're crying out, a Psalm of Lament, during the exile. We want your babies to be smashed against rocks, God's people say. That's how they feel. And you would too if you saw your, your baby smashed against rocks, you'd want vengeance. But there's comfort in the sovereignty of God because, one, he's keeping his promises. He told them, if you disobey me, this is what's coming. We don't want him to keep his promises in that. We want him to, you know, faithful and just and forgive us our sins, cleanse us of unrighteousness. That's a good promise. In this world, you will have trouble. I don't like that promise. Yeah, that's what this is like. But he always keeps his promises. And it also shows Nebuchadnezzar is not the one who took him into captivity that God is a superior king to even the most powerful king on the planet. He is sovereign, amen? It means that he's the supreme ruler. That's what the word sovereign means. That he has all the authority and all the control, which the reason why that's comforting, even in the midst of difficulty, chaos, the worst circumstances of life, like the cross, which he then redeems for the greatest good, is that he's actually in control, Nebuchadnezzar's not. Neither is Joe Biden, neither is Donald Trump, neither is Ron DeSantis, neither is anybody else, the governator, doesn't matter. God is the superior king, amen? And so, we have choices though. In a culture of compromise, you can choose to run into a holy huddle. Some, there are probably 50 to 75 young men that fall into the category that Daniel and his buddies fall into. But we only see four taking a stand. Hmm. The other option might be to compromise. You can just embrace the culture. Eat the food. Be part of it. You're good for eternity, so just live it up here. A lot of people who go to church do that. But there's a third way. That's what Daniel shows us. The third way is you don't have to run and be afraid of culture. In fact, you can learn a lot even from the Babylonians. But there's more. And you have that wisdom that comes from God. And so rather than coming into culture and being conformed to the culture, you come into the culture taking the things that are true and then point them to the one who is truth. Instead of being conformed, you are transformed and that transformation then influences the culture around you. And that's what Daniel does. And so we see it in our passage. We'll start reading... I told you we're going to focus in on verse 8 today, but I'll start reading in verse 3, Daniel chapter 1. No, verse 3 has a hard name in it. Let's start in verse 4. How about that? There's a guy with a hard name who's the man, he's under Nebuchadnezzar, but over these young men. And um, here's what happens. The king ordered the guy with the hard name uh, to go get some guys from the royal family. Remember Babylon comes from Babel, Genesis chapter 11. They were trying to build a tower. What they were really trying to build was a name for themselves. They were all about image. All about self. Build your brand. That was Genesis 11.4. Young men, without any physical defect. Handsome. Oh, okay, so we know what they value. Sound familiar? Young, beautiful, showing aptitude for every kind of learning. Languages, cooking, art, whatever. Well-informed, quick to understand. They're problem-solvers. They're qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature. Well, that's how you can shape thinking. The stories, literature, stories we tell shape the things we believe. The language, bat, that's period, literally, it's going to be great. Here we go, we get the right language. It wasn't Hebrew. It's the language of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. And so that you go to school... And we tell you what to say, what to think, what the stories you are to believe, a way to talk, and then we're going to give you a good job for the government with benefits. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The guy with the hard name, uh, verse 7, the chief political uh, guy here, chief official, gave them new names. Huh. Remember last week, I was talking to you about, I like how Tony Evans outlined the passage, and he said, what's happening in Daniel chapter 1 is isolation, get them away, they're 900 miles away from Jerusalem, their hometown. Get them away from everything they know to be true, everything they knew from their culture, let's get them away from other people that tell them the truth. By the way, we live in a time right now that many people have described as crowded loneliness. Isolation, there are things to love about being American. There are things that are counter-biblical like our rugged individualism. That's the opposite of the Bible, just so you know. Christianity is a team sport. You can be the greatest, gifted, you know, Tom Brady argues some people say he's the best football player. He'd have won zero Super Bowls if it was one on 11. You cannot live a victorious Christian life being a rugged individual. You're probably losing weights you don't even know if you're trying. These guys at least have each other. There's four, wish there were more. There's four. Gave them new names. It's isolation, indoctrination, language and literature, and then re-identification. But if you'll accept it, gratification. I'm gonna give you a good job. Three years of this school, do the stuff we say, don't get on a line, yeah, work for the king have a salary, benefits, the best of everything and anything you could want. Just fall in line and we're going to erase your God in the process. That was the point of the new names. So just two points today. The first one is simply this. If you're in a culture of compromise, a culture of compromise will always come after your identity in Christ. Try to erase it, mistake it, steal it, make you forget about God. And so just for clarity, and for the sake of some of our relationships, um, when I'm talking about compromise in the Book of Daniel, words are nuanced, and their context always define the word. Compromise is not always bad. In business, compromise can be good, right? And negotiation. We see it right now, the UAW and the big three automakers. each are going to have to give up something. Nobody's going to get everything they want. That's good compromise. Good compromise. Uh, the government might shut down, I think, next week. Um, but Republicans and Democrats, they don't agree on much of anything. Each are going to have to give on some things. That's good negotiation, depending on what they give on. Married couples, I don't want you to go home today, and if it starts to get cooler outside, you know, it's like 90 last week, and it's like 40 today or whatever, um, I'm not turning the heat on. Pastor Scott said not to compromise. <laughs> right? Because it tends to be, in my experience, every couple has a spender and a saver, right? An early bird and a night owl. (laughs) And somebody who likes it cold, and then my wife. It wants to be like 85 and she's still wearing a sweatshirt. If we went with what she thought, we would save a lot of money on air conditioning. But I would be miserable. So we compromise. I go, I'd like it at 50, now what do you wanna do? Just kidding. We, if you're in a marriage and you don't compromise, um, one of you hates the other one, just so you know. And one of you is a jerk. <laughs> there's good compromise. There's bad compromise. And it can happen in marriages too. There's marriages where people are abusive. You don't negotiate with an abuse. oh, he hit me, but he loves me. No, punch him back and get out of there. There are, you don't want your boss to, compromise on your safety oh don't worry it's just asbestos it never killed anyone actually (laughs) but the most dangerous place is in your core values your beliefs and what we see happening in this passage is one of the reasons i laid the groundwork by doing some kind of nerdy stuff last week talking about worldview is that we have two worldviews that are in conflict with one another and so remember last week I told you a worldview, very simply, and I gave you some academics and how they define it, but simply it's just the lens through which we see the world. It's why when you watch CNN, they see an event one way, and then you watch Fox, and it's like, they're looking at the same event, but they see it totally different. The event's irrelevant. It's already determined how they're going to see it based on the lens through which they look. That's your worldview. The core questions are things like, who am I? How do you identify? Where'd I come from? So... God-centered or not, because there's only two views. One's God-centered, the other's man-centered. One's eternal, the other one's very temporary. One, satisfaction. You are, you're not the center of the universe. God is. You were created for God, and so that you exist to glorify God, and ultimately, you're going to be delivered from everything. Amen? So that means from one worldview, this is as bad as it gets. From another worldview, this is as good as it gets. So of course you're going to see everything different. But that creates a conflict if you genuinely have a biblical worldview. And so I need some participation here just to show you how perspective can change things. I'm going to put a picture up. I need everybody's participation for this first illustration. Put a picture up. I just want you to read this. Some of you punctuation Nazis love this. I get that. How many of you read the first time, how many of you read, you don't matter, give up? Raise your hand. Huh? How many of you, maybe you know Mandarin, I don't know, you matter, don't give up? How many of you read that? All right. Perspective matters, huh? I need one volunteer to come up here on the stage. I will not hurt you, I just need one, for, like, yeah, I don't know what people get hesitant about on this, but here's what I'm going to do, just I'm going to tell you everything I want to do, and then I'll ask for a volunteer, I'm going to give you some glasses, I brought a special pair of glasses today, that make you see everything upside down, all right, have you seen these Monica, my eye doctor is here in the second row, all right, you can come on up, you don't have to raise your hand, and then I'm going to give you these tasks, and I just want to talk to you about the tasks, and we'll see how you do on them, so here we go, just for the everybody's sake, just we'll get to know each other a little bit, a little bit here, and I can talk to everybody today, but what is your name? I'm Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Let's give Sarah a hand. Thank you for coming up here. You probably want to take your glasses off, Sarah. Pump this on, and we've got—we're going to show you an idea of what she's seeing through this. Uh, just up on the screen, you'll see everything is a little upside down. You stay there. Don't walk too much here. One of my kids had this on last night. Sarah, you didn't have anything to drink before the service, right? Because people are going to. No, okay, just making sure. All right, I'm going to ask you some basic tasks. I'm right here. Um, can you just give me a high five? Right here. I I right there. All right, let's give her a hand. Here we go, all right. I've got a couple little props here, and, and I think we might have some music, so we can crank the music kind of game show-ish here. Um, I'm gonna set this cup down just right right here. You can see, yeah, right there. I'm gonna give you four rings. They're right here at your feet, so don't touch them yet. I'm gonna give you 20 seconds. One at a time, can you take these rings and set them over, not throw them, but set them over top of that. Ready? One, two, three, go. 20 seconds. <laughs> You're close to run out of time. All right. Two, That better than the first service. Two, three, two. One. All right, Sarah, three out of four. Yes. Not bad, high five. Right there, all right. all right. One more, one more. I'm just gonna ask you to hop from one hoop to the other. And so we'll stay away from the steps. Don't go that way too much, all right? Right over here, right over here. Put yeah, the one there. And that one. So stay right there, that'll be the first one. And then the second one, you'll find it. Don't worry about it. And then there's uh, one over here and one right there. And so three, two, one, music please. Sarah, go ahead and jump to the blue one. No, the blue one's over there, right over there. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit further. I'm sorry, I wasn't judging your athleticism here, but let's just move that there. Right there, here we go. that there. There you go, Sarah, right there. Can you see? All right, you have 10 more seconds. You're, ha- you're not, it's all right. You're getting close, Come on, that? There we go. You're gonna get it, you're gonna get it if you find it. Well, over here, over here. Oh, that one hurt. All right. Yeah, she did it! High five. All right, right there. All right, keep them on, just head back to your seat. Just kidding, just kidding. Let's take those off. All right, Sarah, thank you, Sarah. Give you your real glasses here. There you go. Can you imagine seeing everything in your life upside down? As a follower of Christ in a world that views the rest of the world the opposite of you, that's how you're viewed. But the reality is when you read the Bible, you realize that we actually, it's not that you're seeing the world upside down, it's that you're living in a world that is upside down. And when you view it through the lens of Scripture, it's hard even sometimes to do basic things like decide right from wrong. Like to know your identity. Like... To go to a gathering of the team, hear one of your coaches tell you you're supposed to be salt and light and then have an opportunity to take a stand and it's a lot harder than just talking about it. Hey Sarah, just put the ring over top of the cup. It's hard when you're in an upside down world. Let me tell you something. Daniel's world is upside down. He's in isolation He's experiencing indoctrination. Hmm. We'll tell you what to say, Daniel. Can you just imagine Daniel sitting in class? It's taught in their language, <laughs> not his. So he's going to learn the language and the literature. And Daniel has a biblical perspective. His name is Daniel. We've got a slide that shows what his name means versus the names that they give him mean. L at the end is for Elohim. His name means God is my judge. Belshazzar is the name that they give him. It means Bel protects his life. Who's in charge? The Babylonians are trying to erase Elohim. Also in the Old Testament called Yahweh, another name for the one true God. Hananiah, the end of his name, alludes to Yahweh. His name means Yahweh is gracious. It's true. God is Daniel's judge. He's your judge. He's my judge. He's everybody's judge. But he's also gracious. And none of us can measure up. But he provides a way. Jesus. Mishael means who is like God? Great question. And then you look at Michael's life. Because in the ancient times, names were more than just Labels. And God's the one who actually initiated changing someone's name. It showed they were under a new authority. Abram to Abraham, father who is unable to have kids, changes his name to father of a nation. And then God makes it happen. Jacob, hmm, Jacob comes out of the womb grabbing his brother Esau's heel. His name Jacob means grasper or deceiver. He steals his brother's birthright. Do you know how? By stealing his identity but then one night changes everything he wrestles with God God changes his name to Israel do you know what that means? Struggler with God anybody identify? who is like God? Mishael supposed to be but Meshach means who is what Aku is that's a Babylonian God and so is Bel and there are multiple and they all try to erase Yahweh Elohim it'd be like saying God is my judge. No, 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 no. Success will determine your identity, Daniel. Yahweh is gracious. No, you will be inspired by the things of this world, Hananiah. Mishael, who is like God? No, no, no. Express yourself. Azariah, Yahweh helps. No, I'm on my own. I'll serve myself. There's really only two worldviews. They're in conflict here. Isolation, indoctrination, can't you just imagine Daniel? They're promising the gratification, they've tried to do the re-identification, and he's sitting in class. Here's how we talk, Daniel. They're not garbage men, they're sanitary engineers. Why do we do that? Because they're, they might be offended, whoever's offended the most, that's who wins in our culture. No, oh, Babylonians are like us you guys play any sports? Yes, we have a team. They used to be called the native Babylonians, but now we just call them the team. I mean the commanders. I mean, I don't know. We don't know about that, but what we do know is that Babylon was all about image. Image was everything. That's why in verse four, give me handsome, young, without defect, that we can use for our own benefit. Able to learn, and we'll tell them what to think. Can you imagine Daniel asking a question? This is a safe space, Daniel. We don't ask questions. I thought I was supposed to learn. I thought you learned by asking questions. Just be quiet. We'll tell you what to think. Sound familiar? Hmm. Can we... Should be able to question the Bible? God, the Bible, the people in the Bible that we hold as heroes. God, where are you? How can you be like this? No, no, don't talk like that. (laughs) Oh dangerous. Hitler did it. Babylon did it. It's not new. It's a worldview conflict because Babylon is not a godly world. And neither is ours. Talk about upside down. We live in a world where society, culture is trying to tell us things that God explicitly condemns. Even as signs of that you're on your way to hell. We celebrate and say our right. So things that he says are wrong, clearly. I'm not talking about fuzzy stuff. How do we decide? What about this? There's gray areas. There's difficult things to decide. And we can disagree on those things. And we might be wrong. But there's some stuff, it's not fuzzy. I mentioned genders, that the world's telling us there's 72. God says, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, he created them, male and female. I'm not a math whiz, sounds like Two. I don't believe in your God. Well, science, everything that's true points to the one who is true. It's convenient to follow science then, but now you want to follow your feelings and whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, all right, weird. I could only do that if I was the center of the universe. Oh, that's your worldview. Makes sense. But if you're a follower of Christ and God's central, let me just give you a few passages of scripture where God says one thing and our culture claims something exactly the opposite. How about this one? God says, Exodus 23, 7, have nothing to do with false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death for I will not acquit the guilty. Culture claims we can kill the most vulnerable people in our culture. It's about 64 million of them so far through abortion. They don't even have a voice, but it's our right. Culture claims. God says opposite. God says there's one way to him. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, culture claims there are many ways and you just call your God different things, but we all get there. That's the opposite of what God says. We sell stuff using the tactics that God says are a sign we're hellbound. Galatians 5, 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious, everyone should know this, obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, it's making up your own god, witchcraft, or drug use is another way to translate that, pharmacia, hatred, discord, <laughs> Whoa, that's how we get people to watch TV, jealousy, fits of rage, that's how things go viral, what are you talking about, selfish ambition, build your brand. Dissensions, factions, envy, that's how we motivate our employees. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. My God would never say. This one does. Culture claims it's a self-expression. You do you. God says, Exodus 23, verse 3. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Culture claims you're your own God. Call him whatever you want. You can even call him Jesus. As long as he serves you, you be the center. (sighs) There's a lot. God says not even a bunch of people who go to church are gonna be in heaven. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, I won't read it. C.S. Lewis, who once said, I think we have the quote up on the screen, when the whole world is running towards a cliff, he who is running in the opposite direction seems to have lost his mind. We live in an upside-down world. If you have a biblical worldview, you will see it the opposite, and it is trying to take your identity. But you can stand. How? It requires courage. Courage is born in conviction. Our second point. Conviction of a connection to your identity in Christ. You see, they take a stand. Verse 7, their names are changed. But verse 8 says, But Daniel resolved... Not to defile himself, but he goes to their schools. Third way. I'm not telling you whether you should do homeschool or public school or private school. We've done all of them, all right? We we probably messed all of them up. But anyway, the point is, we can learn from people who aren't Christians. We don't have to run from them. We can engage them. We can dialogue with them. We can benefit from them and be a benefit to them. That's what Daniel does. But he doesn't eat their food. Why the food? Why does he take a stand here? I told you last week that if you grew up in Sunday school and you've heard uh, Daniel chapter 1, most likely your teacher or pastor told you it was because the meat was sacrificed to idols. That can't be the reason. I might be wrong about what I think the reason is. There's about eight or nine popular reasons that are given. I'm going to tell you mine, which I didn't find in any commentary, so very likely I could be wrong, and I just want us to have a safe space here. (laughs) In the sense of, you don't all have to believe what I'm telling you right now. We can disagree about this, still love each other, and actually believe we're both still going to go to heaven. I don't know if you, if you didn't. It's not based on my thought about this, if you think I'm not going to heaven, all right? It's not idolatry because the vegetables are sacrificed to idols too, and in Daniel chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, Daniel's eating the meat then. Why would it be okay then and not now? It's not because of idolatry. That preaches really well. <laughs> but if you read the whole Bible, or at least just the whole book of Daniel, it's inconsistent, at best, that's not the reason. Some people think it's because the Babylonians would have dietary laws that culturally would not accommodate people from Israel because God had said to only eat certain animals and only when they're killed a certain way. The Babylonians don't care about that. They're gonna not kill an animal the way they want. They're gonna kill an animal all they want. They're gonna put the best meat. This is the best food. This is not, I don't think, because of that. But we know that food is highly cultural, Right? I think I'm still allowed to say this. If not, I won't be here next week, but love you guys. Um, like, if I'm talking to my wife, I go, hey, let's get some Mexican food tonight. Let's get some Indian food tonight. Let's get some, and pick an ethnicity, Italian food tonight. What's that? Does anyone ever say, there you go, Italian, does anyone ever say American food, by the way? Pizza? Just kidding, Italians, don't get mad. Just kidding. Burgers? Like, what do you, smoked meats? Like, I don't know. I'm sure that'll eventually be offensive to somebody but we all know that food is intimate because we are what we... That's actually it. scientifically true. Follow the science. Unless you feel... Just kidding. One time, I decided I was going to be a vegetarian for a little while, and every man in my life challenged my masculinity. <laughs> Why? It's intimate. We care about this but I don't think that's why. Some people have used Daniel chapter one to argue that you should be vegetarian. I think that's ridiculous. You can argue from science if you want to, but Daniel's teaching the opposite. First of all, if you take a Daniel diet, please notice at the end of Daniel chapter one, they were fatter than they were before. (laughs) Uh huh. And the vegetarian that they were eating was anything from the seed, not just broccoli and asparagus. I don't think it's about the food. I don't think Daniel wants, to, if you want to go on a diet? That's great. Steward of your body, that's a biblical worldview. Great. However, don't try to prove it from Daniel chapter 1. I think what Daniel's doing here, and there's a, there's a compelling argument of the nine that I like, that he's saying, I'm not dependent on Nebuchadnezzar, I'm dependent on God. That's possible. I don't think that's fully it. In ancient world, just like names had more meaning than just a label like we sometimes use, a meal with someone was a sign of friendship, fellowship, acceptance, And I think that Daniel's drawn a boundary here where he's saying, hold on, we're not friends. We're at war. Well, I'm gonna bless you. But I'm, and notice he doesn't demand his rights. He requests from the guy with the hard name to not eat the best stuff. And I don't think it had to do with meat because it's also wine. And it's not because he took a Nazarite vow like he was Samson or something. It's, I think he wanted something where they could see the results, and if you have the slide of the the names again, I think what Daniel's actually doing is he's showing, you're trying to rename me, but it doesn't change that these things are true, that God's the one that actually is in control, he is my judge, that he is gracious, that he is the one who will show himself through his people, that he is the one who provides, because that's what happens. Interesting how tied to their identity this food is here, and I believe Daniel's able to stand and be courageous here on his convictions. And he says this, who here is going to say this? Test me. Huh? And he says, Test me for 10 days. Interesting when you think about that, because 10 is associated with testing in the Bible. There's the 10 commandments. I want you to be set apart. You're going to be my people. Here's how people are going to know. Here's the big 10 right here. There's a place where God says that we should test him, it's in the tithe. The tithe is how much percent? I'm glad you guys know. Do you all know that? Let's check. just kidding. 10%. 10. Jesus heals 10 lepers. They don't all come back to thank him. Luke 17. 10 is an interesting number. There's 10 plagues, huh, in the exodus. Here, he says, 10 days. At the end of the chapter, God says they were 10 times smarter than everyone else after having this diet, after taking this stance, I believe they pass the test and it all points to God. God changed the mind of this guy because at first he says, I'm afraid of my boss. That makes sense. If you're a man-centered worldview, of course you're gonna be afraid of a man who has more power than you. But Daniel's shrewd, we're told as followers of Christ to be innocent as does, be shrewd as vipers. He tells him, If you give me what I want, you will get what you want. Our sales will go up, boss, and then your boss will see. He says, if we don't come out better, which is going to make you look good, like you're leading us better than all the other managers are leading their groups of, okay, let's try it. So it's going to bless me. Yeah, Jeremiah told Daniel to bless the people you're with when you're in exile. He was a contemporary. Jeremiah chapter 25, you bless the city. That's what you, but there are pagans and we're, uh-huh. And you serve them and you love them, but there's a point where you draw a line. Mm. That's the third way. Not conformed, transforming. Doesn't mean totally disengaging, doesn't mean totally embracing, but you are in it. Mm. It requires courage to then take a stand. Notice there's only four guys here. Some of you may remember a young lady by the name of Rachel Dellenhollander. She was a gymnast who was sexually abused by Larry Nassar. The reason her name stands out is because she was the first person to accuse him. Larry Nasser was a world-renowned doctor for Michigan State University, for the United States gymnastics team, and abused hundreds, if not thousands, of young girls over decades. And no one stood up. Think about that. They're living in a world where everything's evaluated and judged by appearance and performance by the authorities over you who tell you whether you're good enough or not. You're going to stand up against them, and if you do complain, they say, no, this is, that's how it's supposed to go. Doesn't seem like it. She took a stand. She was the first person to make an accusation. She didn't know if she'd be alone. The day that Larry Nassar was convicted took more than one day because there were 200 victims that had found to give a credible testimony against him. They were allowed to give impact statements. I want to play you a portion of Rachel's impact statement. This got played on national news on all the channels regardless of worldview.
1: No matter the cost, it was a right. And the farthest I can run from what you have become is to daily choose what is right instead of what I want. You have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires. A man defined by his daily choices over and over again to feed that selfishness and perversion. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it cost others. And the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially, no matter what it costs me. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness, and so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know that the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to live this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but maybe like if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror. Without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it is better for a millstone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and its eternal terror is poured out on them like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well.
0: Amen. Every news channel, playing the gospel. There's a lot that could be said about what she said. What a picture of forgiveness. There's teaching there, by the way. It's possible to forgive. doesn't mean there aren't consequences wasn't reconciliation. It was forgiveness. Different. She asked the judge after that for the harshest sentence possible for him. That's justice and forgiveness. The only way we can do that is if have a biblical worldview. The judge said, about, remember there were 200 impact statements just in this case. The judge has seen thousands of cases. The judge said Rachel is the bravest woman that she had ever seen. her conviction. She said, why do this? Because it's right. You do what's right and let God handle the results. Daniel doesn't know how the test is going to turn out. No one else has ever done this. He's stepping out by faith and saying, it's time to draw a line. And then Daniel writes the book and he doesn't end it by saying, didn't you see how awesome I was in that, the stand up? If you look and you start, and we don't tend to read every verse, but you start going through and you look and you see, Daniel says what happened. It wasn't his persuasive sales techniques, his shrewdness, that got this guy to change his mind. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked, so he asked, he didn't demand the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God, oh, God had caused even a pagan's heart to change. Huh. And then you keep reading and, and talks about the test, and I've alluded to some of that already. And he says, You go ahead and test me 10 days. Look at verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding. Who gave it? Daniel wrote this God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and lear- even the Babylonian myths, sorcery. We'll talk about that some next week. And learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. He learned from some of the enchanters and magicians, probably some pretty charismatic teachers, but he stayed faithful to God. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, wait a minute, I thought their names were Belteshazzar. Interesting. They stood out and they revealed God is judge, God is gracious, God provides, God helps. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and chanters in the whole kingdom. What is this, limitless? Seen that movie? I don't know how I learned that language, I think I heard it somewhere. Uh, that'd be cool. I don't think that's what this is. What I think it is, is they're taking the things that are true because it's possible for pagans to believe the wrong things but still have true stuff, and that's one of the reasons why it's so hard in our divided world to decide sides when both places say some true and some not true things. The Babylonians are saying some true things. They just, it's incomplete wisdom because it's not God's wisdom. God's wisdom goes further, It's like listening to a self-help talk, and they'll tell you a principle that's actually true, the Bible teaches it, but they're lacking Jesus. They're talking about how to manage your finances, the Proverbs, talk about these things, and then, but no eternal perspective. Ten times greater. That's how you function the third way. But you've got to know who you are, which means you need to know the word, but not just know the word. The application of today's message is not just, go read your Bible, study Daniel, No. I remember a professor in seminary where I went to learn the Bible to be able to minister to you like up here today. And one of my mentors, his name was Howard Hendricks, said, Scott, I don't care how many times you read the Bible. I want to know how many times the Bible goes through you. Hmm. Oftentimes that happens in testing. Just so you know when the heat gets turned up where the things that you read become Real. And it's less about the details of Daniel's story and how hot was the furnace and how smart was he at the end of the deal and should I go on a diet like that and more about is God the one who judges? Is he the one who provides? Is he gracious? Will he help me through this? Uh-huh. So you've got to know the truth and see the world through the truth. How do you identify? As we wrap up the service, I want to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. My prayer today is not going to be a normal prayer. I'm just going to read some truths about what the Bible says about you because if you have a biblical worldview where God is central, not you're central, then God's the one who decides your identity. It's not about how you feel. It's not about what you want to be true. You don't just look in the mirror and give yourself some self-talk in the morning and that dictates or somebody else says or your success or what degree did you get or how bad was your sin? Did you fall into drugs? Did you decide to have an affair? Did you... God tells us what's true regardless of your circumstances and what you see, what you feel. Truth is actually based on facts, not just your feelings. And it's not a convenience where when the facts line up with what you want to believe, you get to claim facts. And when they don't, you trump that with chaos, confusion, and emotion. Here's what God says is true about you if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, these things are the opposite for you you're adopted as his child. How about this verse? 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished. I love that word, lavished on us. That we should be called, here's who you are, you're called this by God, children of God. And that is what we are. This is an identity statement. There are hundreds of them in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And so we follow a savior who was crucified and you might get canceled. They're not gonna love what you say. It goes against the flow. God has boundless love for you. That's why the apostle Paul prays this in Ephesians chapter three for the Ephesian believers that he loves. Verse 14, for this reason, I kneel, a guy who used to be named Saul, now named Paul, was a persecutor of the church, now a proclaimer of the gospel. And he says, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit, which by the way is indwelling your life, Ephesians 1.13, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're in Christ, so that, here's why, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and I pray that you, here's the foundation, being rooted and established in love. Where does courage come from? the foundation, the root, you may have power by the Holy Spirit together with all the Lord's holy people set apart, not of this world, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love, this infinite love of Christ. Second Corinthians 5.17, you are new. Therefore, if anyone, age, race, gender, darkness of depravity, preservation of soul, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. Second Peter. Peter, Peter. What was his name? Simon. And then he had an encounter with God and God showed his authority and he changed his name to Rock. He was fickle. Double-minded in all of his ways. Not when he wrote 2 Peter. God had changed him. He was a pillar of the church. Apostles. Church is built, this movement we're a part of, built on guys like Peter. Says this to a church in exile in the New Testament, 2 Peter one four. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. He keeps them all, ones we like, ones we don't. So that through them you may participate. You're a partaker. Not everyone. Not if you're not in Christ. But if you're in Christ, you may participate in the divine nature. You're a partaker of God. That's an interesting concept when you think about it. the Bible teaches that it's in his presence, presence fullness of joy is found. We're commanded to taste and see that the Lord is good. Often that happens in difficulty. You're partakers of his divine nature. The verse goes on, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. It's our own desires that are breaking this place. Romans 8:1 says, You're free. Therefore. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're already condemned. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. You're already condemned. By following your evil desires, there's a way that seems right to man, and it leads to death. There's a way to God. His name is Jesus. The Old Testament tells us he gives us a new heart. Ezekiel 11, 19. I'll give them an undivided heart. Who wants that? i put a new spirit in them. I'll remove from them their heart of stone and give them... A heart that feels. Talk about this one a little bit more next week. Talk about anti-rugged individualism. First Peter chapter 2. Again, to these exiled, persecuted, New Testament believers. Peter, who's a transformed man, who's lived in a very compromised culture, eventually will be crucified upside down. He says this to these believers. Now to you who believe, just to those who believe, this stone, talking about Jesus, is the precious stone But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall, that's Jesus. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Ooh, that's tough. Oh my God, this one does. But you are, that's an identity statement when you read that in the Bible. You are, talking about God's people, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're in Christ, You've received Jesus as your Savior. He's adopted you into his family. He's poured his lavish love on you, but you are a chosen people. Wait, your identity is not individual. It's a corporate identity, a chosen people, but here's an individual, a royal priesthood. We'll talk about that next week. A priest would represent people to God and God to the people. It's like a bridge, a holy nation. Huh, even though some are from China and some are from Africa and some are from Iran and some are from America and God's special possession you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into it you're a nation of light once you were not a people but now you are the people of God once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy have you received the mercy how do you identify God thank you if we believed on your name John chapter 1, verse 12, we can be called your children, your holy nation, your light in this dark place. Help us to be a light in this dark place. I pray if there's anybody watching online today or, or in this room that hasn't received your son Jesus, maybe they've gone to church, maybe they've become moral, maybe they're trying to clean up some bad habits, maybe they've forgiven some people, but they don't know your son Jesus. Will you pour your lavish love into their life right now? Will you ask Jesus to be your savior? God, not you saw it, you worked hard enough, you were moral enough, you voted the right way, you thought the right thoughts, you did. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that anyone who would believe on him would receive a new kind of life that lasts forever and in John 10 is called abundant to the fullest. It's what you were designed for. If you want that, you need forgiveness. The weight of your sin, like Rachel told Larry Nasser, it is crushing when you see it. And God is my judge, Daniel's name, and name, and he is gracious. And he gave his son so that you could be his son or daughter. We receive him? Those of you who've received him, are you filled with him? The works of the flesh are obvious, Galatians 5, 19. The works of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, even with those you disagree with. Even with those who vote They're not the enemy. They're under the influence of the enemy. Does your heart break? Self control. Joy. God, fill us with your spirit so we have supernatural joy. Ten times greater shrewdness on how to navigate this dark place. It's like wearing upside down goggles. We can walk to the back of the room. We need your Holy Spirit. Help us, empower us, equip us, enable us. He is the helper. If you need the Holy Spirit to help you, ask him to do that right now. We're going to sing a song together. If you need to stay praying, you stay praying. You want to talk with somebody, you can go to the First Steps, Next Steps table out in the lobby and find a pastor, and elder. Come talk to me if you'd like. Stay in your seat. Holy Spirit will meet with you. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.